Father God, we come before you, and Jesus, our hearts um, just are broken with this evil, um, Lord, just this evil spirit that, that seems to possess um, young people and old people and these mass murders, Lord, alike. And um, Father, for the tragedy and for the innocent victims that that had to deal with this and the horror that's going to um, face them and haunt them the rest of their lives, Lord God, and and the enemy um, instilling fear in them. We pray for a deliverance, a supernatural healing um, among those students' lives who were saved but saw the tragedy and saw the trauma. And, and now, Lord, as a result, without you, could live in fear. And so, God, we pray, Father, for, for them. We pray for a healing over their, their hearts and their souls, God. Lord, I pray for this young man and what was unique about today is he's still alive and Usually that doesn't happen, and, and Lord, that we, we do. We pray for this young man, and against all odds, Lord, that by some something that you would work in his life, and um, when it almost feels like he doesn't deserve forgiveness, but yet, God, we do pray for his forgiveness. We pray for his healing, God. We pray for his salvation, Lord. We pray, Father, that um, that you would that you would change his life, and that, Lord, he would spend the rest of his life in prison, but maybe redeemed in that prison, and maybe as the thief on the cross would get to go to heaven, Lord, even even after this terrible atrocity, Lord. And God, we pray for our nation, God, that we've turned our back on you, Lord. And in so many ways, we as your people, and we're, we, we're, we're called to pray, Lord. We're called to repent. And so, Lord, we repent for this nation. We repent for the sins of our nation, for, for the, the godlessness when we, we took God out of the school and we legalized abortion. And Lord, so many, so many things and decisions that we've made and and Lord, we, we as your people, Lord, we, we, we ask for, for somehow, God, for you to turn those things back, God, and for us to make a difference and for us to be a light in this world, Lord, and for us to continue to pray for revival upon this land and pray for, for these things before they happen, that, that the light and the love of Jesus would change lives, Lord God, because it's the only thing that's going to bring about a change and a difference. And so, Father, we pray for every family of the victims today, Lord, and moms and dads and brothers and sisters that are that are just broken right now father and they've lost needless to needless violence a young person lord a high school student who's dead today lord we we pray for them god we lift them up to you we pray jesus that if they're not christian or if they don't know you that that even through this terrible thing they would they would cry out to you and you would be found and i pray lord for the the christians in that community in that school we pray for pastor malcolm wild and a our, our sister church, Calvary Chapel, that's that's close to there. Father, we pray for um, them to be um, your hands and your feet in this situation. We pray for them to have the power of the Holy Spirit to reach into this darkness and shed light. And God, that you would bring healing and that you would bring, Father, something good out of this terrible thing. And we pray for the protection moving forward for other cities and other places against this this evil that, that's sweeping our, our nation, Lord, and has for so long, God. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Judges chapter 3, so you can turn there. But before we uh, get to Judges chapter 3, you, or you can turn there and hold there. I'm going to read a couple scriptures to you guys, a couple verses. All uplifting stuff today on Valentine's Day because we are in the book of Judges. <laughs> and if you know anything about the book of Judges or if you've read ahead... There, there's, this is like the TMI book, okay? The book of Judges is like too much information, Lord. Like we could have like got the story without all those details, but he spares no details in the book of Judges. And so, um, you know, as you guys know, the, the judge was both a, a prophet and um, 
he, not, not to think of a judge like we have today with the robes and judicial that he was. A, a judge is just another term basically for prophet um, of Israel and a ruler or somebody that would come and would, would represent God to the people. And so we had this period of Israel's history called judges. The most famous judges um, in Israel's history, the ones you would know right off the bat would be Gideon. Gideon is a famous judge, somebody that we talk about oftentimes. Um, um, Samson would be another one, and then one we'll meet tonight is a woman judge named Deborah. But um, so before we do, since it's Valentine's Day, we're going to start in the Song of Solomon. But you don't have to turn there with me unless you're like a really fast flipper and you just want to see it. I'm going to check out Song of Solomon chapter 2. Um, this was this was for the sermon on Sunday, and I just didn't get to it. But there, there's a verse, and I think it's really powerful. And um, this is Solomon and his um, his 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 I would say his bride, but he had a thousand of them, so um, or seven hundred. Um, but it's it's a love song, and really, they in Jewish uh, culture, you have to be thirty years old before you're allowed to read the Song of Solomon because it's it's really racy, and it's about uh, real love and life and um, and it holds nothing back and so um, but you guys are all married and older than 30 no I'm just kidding I don't know how old you are but I, I, you could still read the song of Solomon chapter 2 real quick it says I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley and the beloved it says like a lily among thorns so is my love among the daughters the, to the Shulamite like an apple tree among the trees in the woods so is my beloved among the sons I sat down in his shade with my great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Yeah, I wasn't kidding, right? Um. So we, 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 we covered marriage on Sunday in church, and I was going to use that verse. I just never got to it. But, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to share just quickly tonight on Valentine's Day for you is that, um, that this verse is something we sing songs about. There's hymns about it. That his banner over me is love. And I don't know why it didn't really resonate with me before this week as I was studying this. But um, what, what does a banner do? A banner is what? It's, it, it, it proclaims something. It advertises something. Like we, we want to put a banner out so that everybody knows what it is we want them to know. And, and for this particular woman in the case there, now obviously it's, you know, his banner over me is love, is, is God's banner over you. But in this particular case, it was Solomon's banner over her was love and that, that everybody knew he loved her. And, and it, was, it was an ad and it wasn't hidden, that it was, it was very well known that, that he loved his wife and that she felt this love and this security and this, this banner over her life was love. And so for us as husbands, you know, the Bible says for us, the husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think sometimes, you know, we, we, we feel like we um, don't necessarily need to or have to, you know, sh- make it well known in the whole world how much we love our wives. And, but it's okay to. It's, it's good to. You know, it's not something we have to keep secret between, you know, just us. And, and then the feeling that, that we have as Christians, knowing that God's banner over us is love. That God puts a, an ad over us, a big banner everywhere we go, with an arrow pointing down like, this is my child and I love him. And I love you. And God's not embarrassed of you. And God's not ashamed of you. And God loves you. And he wants the whole world to know that he loves you. 
And that same idea that, that God loves us. And then for, again, on Valentine's Day for us as husbands, that we love our wives that way. So anyways, that was it. So guys, go home and read Song of Solomon to your wives tonight on Valentine's Day. I'll set the mood for you. That one's free. All right. So chapter three. A um, couple of things I wanted to point out today as we got into Judges. And I think, I think for me, you know, we, we have together as a church, you guys, we've been walking through. We started in Genesis and we have been marching through the Old Testament. We now find ourselves in Judges. And this idea of the Canaanites and this pagan culture has um, come up so much. And as you guys know, God's plan was that Israel would completely annihilate the Canaanites. He didn't want his people to dwell with them. He didn't want his people to intermingle with them. And they, they did well at times, but really the history and the story of the judges is that all of these Canaanite civilizations still existed and Israel never went out and conquered. And we saw that in the beginning where Joshua's idea and Joshua's thought was that the people were going to step up and even ask them at one point, like, are you guys going to go out and do what God's told you to do basically is to conquer these nations? And Israel got to a place where they didn't want to battle anymore. They didn't want to go out and fight and they had a nest egg and they had what they felt like was enough and they didn't want to continue to conquer. And it was such a mistake. And, and for us in our lives, Christianity is not about, um, you know, conquering what's around us and giving ourselves enough space so that we can rest. And if we have enough space so that we can rest, then God expects us to go and take new territory and continue to conquer. And, and any time, you know, it happened with King David at the time that King David sinned with Bathsheba, you know, King David had, had fought and, and did work for lots and lots of years. And he reached a point in his kingdom where things were well, his army was strong, his kingdom was fortified. And it says in the, in this time of in the season that the kings would go out to war, King David decided to sit this one out and he stayed home and every, all the men were out fighting in the, in the season. And they had a season. I think it's kind of strange, right? That they had seasons where they would war, but I think everybody decided, Hey, let's not fight each other until it's a nice outside, you know, but they, they, they would go out and fight during this season and David stayed home. And that's why Bathsheba's husband wasn't there. Uriah, the Hittite, and, and, and again, it's just a, a biblical mistake of David taking that time off. And we never take that time off. But the, to back up just a little bit to the, the Canaanites. And I, I want to talk just a little bit about the Canaanites tonight. Because, again, for us as Christians, maybe we don't have this hang up. But it's something that we might have to defend. Because God said to annihilate the Canaanites. To murder the Canaanites. And again, when you talk to somebody who's antagonistic towards the scriptures, they'll, they'll know this. They'll know enough that, you know, they'll, they'll throw this in your face. And, and, you know, we've always set it up with the premise that in Genesis, God lays it out that the nation that God gave them 450 years that God poured his spirit out upon the Canaanites to get them to repent. And that's why the nation of Israel was in bondage for that amount of time. And so there came a point where God was then going to judge the Canaanite nation. But for 450 years, he, he gave them opportunity to repent. He poured out his spirit upon them. He did things, um, maybe, not, maybe that's not correct that he poured his spirit out upon them, but he, 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 the Holy Spirit was calling them and drawing them and giving them opportunities to repent, and they wouldn't. Now, the, the sickness that was the Canaanite people, it represents the flesh. The Canaanites, um, the Amalekites, it's a type, an idiom for the flesh in the New Testament. So, and again, what's the recipe that God gives you for your flesh? Is to crucify it, to annihilate it, to cut it off. 
We don't, we don't pull back. We don't cut back on sin. We annihilate sin out of our lives. If we try to taper down our sin, which we often do, it never works. It's never the recipe God gives. We always cut it out. Now, you think of the wickedness, and they were a cancer. And how does a cancer work? It spreads. And so if you get like 80% of the cancer, and then you're cool, you just leave 20, what does that 20 do? It spreads, it spreads. And the only way you have to annihilate it, you have to cut it out. And that was God's prescription. Now, the, the type of wickedness that, that was prevalent among these Canaanite nations, we don't, um, you know, we, we, we don't fathom, we don't get it today. But, you know, does it still exist in our world anywhere today? Lydia's dad leaves tomorrow morning for Malawi. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, Africa at times and in places seems to be pretty God forsaken, right? How many of you guys, how many of you guys seen that movie, Hotel Rwanda? Anybody? It's been a while, right? But, but you, but the thing that really struck me, that movie had such an impact on me because Hotel Rwanda was the battle between the Hutu and the Tutsis in Rwanda. And they were murdering thousands of people with machetes in the streets and the violence that was taking place in Rwanda, um, was, was of biblical proportions and it happened in the eighties. And that's the thing is like, you watch this story and you might think in the 18s and the 16s and even, you know, maybe the early 1900s, but you know, at the time it was like, that was less than 20 years ago. And this kind of carnage, you know, 80% of the world's orphans are in Africa. There, there was a stat at one point that, and I forget, it was every country, but like 70% of Africa was devastated with AIDS. And that's what creates the 80% of the world's orphans are in Africa because of the AIDS. But even, even today, you guys, some of this pagan um, culture stuff still lives. And again, we don't get it. But Lydia's dad leaves for Malawi tomorrow. We have an orphanage. You guys know we have our slide. We support them. Um, but in Malawi... Um, they have an orphanage because oftentimes both parents have died from AIDS. And so there, there are, um, some pagan cultures and customs there. And I think I've mentioned them before. They're kind of gruesome, but they're happening today. And one of them is there's, there's a belief in Africa, in Malawi, that if you're a man and you have AIDS, that, um, in order to get cured from your AIDS, you have to sleep with a virgin. And that's, that's a real, it, real phenomenon, a real problem in, in these countries. And so men that are, that are with AIDS, they're raping the young girls if they're virgins um, because they believe. Now, how could you live in 2018 and believe having sex with a virgin will, will cure you from AIDS? But, but they're, they're really that still pagan and Canaanite in a lot of ways. There's another practice, and I have an article on this one. Um, well, both you can find them, but um, where they have a guy that in, the, in the villages, and I forget, he's like a shaman type. He's a witch doctor. Um, but he, they, they have, um, for their young girls, they have a rite of passage, just like you've seen maybe on certain Nat Geo different programs with the rite of passage that, that African tribes and villages go through, where they either, you know, do certain things that become a man. Well, they have the same similar rites of passages for the girls in the tribes. And their rite of passage is at a certain age when they, when they have their period is to have sex for the first time. And so that's how they become women and they go through their rite of passage. Well, they have a person who performs this deed for the village. So one guy, and, and they, they, they have some documentaries, this old, like, creepy-looking old dude. 
who sleeps with all the girls when they become of age for their rite of passage. He has AIDS. And he and, and all the girls at 15, 14, whatever years old, in order to become women, you know, and this guy slept with 85 different women in the village, and he has AIDS. And you wonder how the, you know, the, the prevalence of AIDS and of even of that thinking. And so part of the battle that, you know, for our, our, our ministry in Malawi, you know, and part of what Tracy and, and Marilee and, and dad are trying to do, and, and it's getting better, but we're trying to educate. And, you know, in some places, obviously, where it's, it's more, um, it's not still tribes and that's kind of things, more city and more rural that they are um, able to, they're, they're educating. And, and part of the process over the last 20, 30 years in Africa has been to try to educate them through this process. But, but again, to think that still in 2018, so now back that up 4,000 years to the Canaanites. And again, I, I could disgust you with more um, historical ideas of the Canaanites, but you know, the ones that we share that are true stories oftentimes is one of the, one of the worships of, of Baal was, was the Baal would be a, a, um, a, a God that they would form and he would, they would set him on fire and he'd be molten hot and they would, they would fashion him so that his hands would be out like this. And then they would place their babies into his hands as a form of worship. And, you know, on and on and on and on with this pagan style worship. So the the idea of the Canaanites. Now, why did I tell you those gruesome details? I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. There, there was a reason. And, and again, I think that, you know, I, I want us to kind of understand the, you know, what God's heart was and, and who these people were and, and why God wanted the, the nation of Israel to do what they did. And so um, let's look at chapter three, beginning in verse number one. And it says, now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. So um, two things to note real quick in verse number one is that the, the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. So um, seems kind of harsh. It seems kind of why would God do that? But I, I think it's biblical. I think it's something that we can kind of fast forward into into New Testament, into life today, that, that there are things in your life. And I, and, and I think if we understand that, you know, it's not God's not out to get us. Oh, this is so hard. This is so terrible. This is so bad. Or why does God do this? But God will allow things in your life if you will allow them to teach you, to test you, to mature you to grow you. And, and rather than get under every trial and every tribulation and every struggle, you know, why is me? Oh my, poor me. You know, where, where we just, we battle through and we have faith and we step out in faith that, that there is a design by God that we see throughout scripture. And so God leaves these and he says that he would use them, that he might test them. And then he says, who's he going to test? He says, that is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. So it's, it's the, the younger generation of the, of the nation of Israel that didn't fight. They didn't fight with Joshua and Caleb. They didn't go out in these conquests. And so they didn't know anything of war. And so, so God left these nations to test them, to teach them how to war, to teach them how to fight, to teach them how to battle. And it says, um, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely the five lords of the Philistine, Philistines and the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who dwelt in the Mount of Hebron, Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. 
and in verse 4, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Flashlights, the Termites. And they took their daughters to be wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. So God does not want us to be unequally yoked. Okay. So if you want to share that with somebody, if you're trying to share that with somebody, if you're trying to encourage Christian people to um, be equally yoked together with Christian people, you know, you, you don't just need the New Testament. You have the entirety of God's scripture is that it's God's will and it's God's plan from, from Genesis to Revelation. And it was one of the mistakes. It was one of the plagues of Israel is that they, they, they intermarried and they gave their sons. And then eventually what happened, you guys ever seen that analogy where you take a cup of water and a cup of mud, a muddy water, and then you pour the clean water into the muddy water, and it doesn't get clean. Then you pour the clean, the muddy water into the clean water, and what happens? It doesn't get clean either. It gets muddy as well. And so it's, it's just the idea that in our lives, sometimes that bad influence, we don't rub off on it and make it better. It rubs on, off on us and make us worse. And that's what was happening. It wasn't like when they were taking the pagan gals and intermarrying that they were teaching them about Yahweh and to serve the Lord. What happened was God's children were, were whoring, as it, as it were, after these foreign gods and these foreign idols. Now, <clears throat> one thing I, I don't really understand, but again, I, I don't know. I never walked a mile in their shoes, but... When it says their gods, specifically their God, um, the most common one was who? Who? Baal, Baal, um, was, was the most um, famous of the Canaanite gods that I think received the most worship. One of the things that, that made it kind of nice was um, Baal was worshipped in fornication. And Baal was worshipped with um, prostitutes and, and temple worship of of prostitutes, and I guess anybody can justify that, right? Oh, I'm worshiping God, or my God. But hey, if you want, I'm going to go to Psalm 115, and the Bible talks about these gods often. And and again, we we don't have particular idols that we fashion and that we, um, you know, we bow down and worship. You know, when I grew up, and I don't know why it was at my house wasn't religious, and it was just a piece of decoration that somebody gave my mom. But um, my mom had one of them Buddha dolls in our house. He had his hands up like this, it was green, he had a big fat belly, and it was just kind of a little decoration. We didn't worship it, we weren't nothing, but she had it, and uh, so I had a little boot. I don't know what happened to that doll, I need to ask her. But, um, but to think, you know, like, doesn't it seem crazy that folks would, like, bow down and worship that thing, you know? And I guess, I guess it, it's more what it represents, right? That, that in the, the idol itself, it's, it's not a god, but... You know, God mocks them and God talks about them, reminds us that there's only one God. In Psalm 115, a couple of these things are mentioned. And it says, um, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes. But they do not see, they have ears, but they do not hear, they have noses, but they do not smell, they have hands, but they do not handle, they have feet, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. 
So verse 8 is really the catalyst there in Psalm 115 as a reminder for us that those who make them are also like them. They're, they're foolish and they're incapable of, of any of those deeds and also those who worship them. And then he goes on and he talks about you know the Lord and bless the Lord and worship the Lord. And then we get a similar psalm, Psalm 135, um, about the middle where, um, or the end in verse 15, he says, the idols of the nations are silver, silver and gold. The work of men's hands, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. And then my favorite verse, speaking of God, um, who's different, not my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses that I quote oftentimes when I say that God is not a T-Rex. And it comes here from Isaiah 59. And, and you know, in, in comparison to the gods of the pagans, the, the Lord, Isaiah speaking prophecy of the Lord, he says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. So the Lord doesn't have hands that are too short, like a T-Rex, that he can't reach you, that he can't take a selfie because his head is too big and his hands are too short. And so God's hands are not too short, nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. And so the gods of the pagans, they have ears, but they don't hear. But your God, his ears are not heavy that he cannot hear. Here's what you say. He, he can reach you. He can touch you. He can speak to you. It says, but you, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongues has muttered perversity. And so again, um, you know, one of the things that I, I encourage us and, and people sometimes um, is that, listen, God can speak to you. You know, sometimes we, I think, in, you know, when we counsel people, we feel like we have to be their Holy Spirit and tell them you know, all the things that are right and wrong. And maybe there's a place for that. And there definitely is at times there's a gift of exhortation, right? But oftentimes I think there's a little more wisdom in putting and encouraging people to let God speak to their heart. Because, you know, again, if we, if we preach it, if we believe it, if we teach it, then we have to live it. And God, God's capable to speak to that person. And, and really nothing's going to change or be real powerful until God does speak to them. And we know God can speak to them. And we, if you're not sure, read Isaiah 59. Go back to Isaiah 59. And that God can speak to his people. Okay? So back to Judges. Not sure where I left off. Let's go to verse 7. It says, um, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Okay, everybody say they forgot. Didn't the Lord tell them, lest you forget? You know, the, when, when we read that back, back in Exodus, you know, um, lest you forget, we think, oh, how could they ever forget what the Lord did through all this stuff? And here it is where it's not that far into their history and they forgot the Lord, their God. And what did they forget? I mean, they forgot what he did for them. They forgot who he was. They forgot the deliverance out of Egypt and, and all the miracles and all the amazing things that he had done to bring them to this place. You know, and I think we're pretty critical of them here in verse seven, like these morons, how could they forget? Next time you want to say these morons, how could they forget? I suggest you get a mirror and you talk to the person in the mirror. I'm not saying you call yourself a moron, but you should probably call yourself a moron. 
Um, no, it's just, it's just a reminder. We live our lives that way. We, we oftentimes forget. You know, there is, a, there is a little bit of a, I think, a, a value in journaling. In journaling the, the things that God has done in your life as a reminder. You know, and sometimes, again, we, we read the book of Acts. And we see miracles and we see wonderful things. We read the book of Exodus and we see all these amazing things that God did. And we think, oh, wow, this just happened like every five minutes in their lives. Like there was these amazing miracles of God. And, you know, only if I could live that way, then, you know, I I would have the faith that I need. But you forget that even in the book of Acts, it's over a long period of time. And, and, And if our church and if Calvary Chapel were written like the book of Acts, I bet it would read very similar to the miracles we shared, Norika shared in here on Sunday morning about a, a bona fide miracle, you know, in our midst this, this last week, you know, and so those, those things are happening, but to keep a journal might, might help us so that we don't end up and forget. Verse number eight says, therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. What? The Lord sold them? I guess. Sold them into the hand of Cushan. Rishathim. King of Mesopotamia and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Somebody say a deliverer. Okay, so that that is um, the book of Judges in a nutshell. Okay, verse number nine. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer. So this particular slide was how long in verse eight? Eight years. Were they really that stubborn? You think, oh, I'm not that stubborn. Yeah, eight years, eight years. But but the blessing is, I guess the good thing is, and, and, and really what, what we're going to find as we walk through Judges is just this pattern. It's a pattern of going around the same mountain of sin in our lives. And, and then they finally looked up. Do you guys remember in Luke, the um, prodigal son? When the prodigal son had spent all of his all of his livelihood on loose living, he was he was working for a pig farmer. Now, what's a good Jewish boy doing at a pig farm in the first place? And he was he said that he was wanting to eat the 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 what are they called the pods that the pigs ate. And that's when it says like he wised up. It says he, actually what it says he came to his senses, and he said, "I'll go to my father." And, and basically, I'll repent. And so he, he had to hit rock bottom. And you know what? We, we don't have to hit rock bottom before we turn, before we look up. But this particular slide, eight years. And so they finally turned to the Lord. And the Lord raised up a deliverer, Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother. And so the first um, judge that's mentioned here of many in the book of Judges that God's going to raise up is this guy, Othniel. And he was Caleb's younger brother. So this this term in the Hebrew, his younger brother, it could be Caleb's nephew. Kind of makes more sense that this was Caleb's brother's son. And it says in verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishim. So the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Get used to it. Round and around we go. God raises up a deliverer, a judge. They do well. And then that judge dies and they go right back to their their muck, as the Bible says, as a dog returns to its vomit. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because he had done evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a great story here. 
Then he gathered, it is. And then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possessions of the, of the city of Palms. Anybody know what the city of Palms is? It's the, it's the Palm Springs of Israel. Jericho. Jericho is such a cool city. Um, it's not so cool today just because it's Arab controlled and it, it bugs me to go to Jericho, but it, it is very historical. It's the oldest inhabited city in the world. Um, there's lots and lots of history of Jericho, obviously the first nation that, uh, the first city that, that the Israelites took when they crossed the Jordan was Jericho, an amazing battle, but, um, but the city of Palms, and it's not far from the Dead Sea, and it's a, it's an oasis there, and there's a, um, there's lots of water there, there's oasis there, and they have tons of palm trees, so it's like the Palm Springs of Israel, and it's a, it's a tropical climate to boot, and so they grow tons of fruit and vegetables there. And so this guy came and he took, um, he took the city of Palms or Jericho. Now that's a little bit of a going backwards, right? Israel's first battle was to defeat Jericho and inhabit it and take it. Now all of a sudden this guy comes and um, he, he takes it back. And so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Jeez, Eight, 18, all these wasted years in life. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So this, um, this, the word Benjamin, what's interesting, you know what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. And he's left-handed. And we think that's no big deal, but actually it's a really big deal because um, and in this, in the tribe of Benjamin, it's funny that the Bible records that of all the tribes, they happen to have an abnormal amount of left-handed men. Now, um, like 700 men of Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin that were left-handed. I've heard some really cool stuff on this before and I won't get into it today, but you know, one said that, that because it was, and we'll see in this story, um, Everybody was right-handed, you know, and everything was done right-handed. And, and there's some cultures even today where your left hand is for using the bathroom and your right hand is for eating. It's for shaking hands. And so you'd never present your left hand to somebody because they don't know where it's been. And everything you got to do, you can do it with the left hand and then you use your right hand for everything else. And that's true culturally. And so to be left-handed... Um, it was was considered in Israel as you know as being goofy footed or as being um, you know a, di- a disadvantage and really faux pas to be left handed. Well, this particular judge that God raised up was left handed, and then like I said, another place it talks about that there was an entire tr- uh, tr- portion of the tribe of Benjamin that were left handed. And again, because what you'll see in this this thing, it became a military advantage in area of surprise that. These men must have trained to become left-handed was one of the studies that I read that I thought was pretty cool. And, um, you know, where they would have had to tie their right hands and learn to do everything left-handed and became left-handed. Now, I don't know how it is. It's in our DNA somewhere, right? Whether you're left-handed or right-handed, you can't become left-handed or right-handed. For us today, lefties are good, right? You got to have a lefty pitcher in the rotation and, you know, having somebody in the two guard that's left-handed is pretty good. But, um, but again, in these days, it was... It was not good. It was frowned upon. And the, the, the people or this particular guy who would have been born left-handed, you know, he probably was bummed out about it. He probably was like, why did God make me left-handed? 
You know, what, what is the reason? What did I do? Or, or, or feeling bad about the fact. And he's going to reach a point in his life now where he'll understand that God had a plan for him being left-handed this whole time. And it says, now he, Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length. What does double-edged remind you of when you hear that in the Word? The Word of God. Hebrews tells us the Word of God is is sharper than a two-edged sword. So a two-edged sword, again, would be sharpened on both sides. And um, there's so many idioms in this next little section for the Word of God. Now we see, again, as we go through it, we're always looking for Jesus. We see um, the Holy Spirit woven in the, the pages of the Old Testament. And here in this little section, one of the things we're going to see are these um, repeated idioms, repeated um, suggestions of things that, that you see in other places in the Bible that are, are um, indicative of the word of God, the two-edged sword. Um, the word of God is called water. It's called milk. It's called bread. Um, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the word of God. It says, wash your wives in the water of the word in Ephesians. Um, and so we'll see these over and over again about applying the word of God in our lives. And then this, um, you know, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. And if the Bible was going to pull punches, it definitely was not going to do it in the book of Judges. This is not the, this is the TMI book. And so I think this is the only time that I'm aware of anyways in the Bible where God just says this dude was fat. I mean, like just lays it out, like doesn't beat around the bush and say he was pleasantly plump or he was, um, he was what? He was a very fat man. So the guy made the, 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 the two-edged sword, and it was a cubit in length, and he fastened it under his clothes on his right side. So he put it on his right leg, um, maybe in his inner thigh, because you would pull from your opposite for battle. So just like if you're, you know, if you're right-handed, oftentimes you'll wear your, your pistol under your left shoulder because you pull it this way. And so same thing with the sword. They would pull their swords from their right thigh with the left hand. So most of the soldiers would have their weapons on their left side. So what has happened is when you would get searched, they oftentimes wouldn't search your right leg because all the weapons were kept on your left leg because you would pull with your right hand. And so he fashioned it to his right side, which was a little bit different. And it says, also, he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of, of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, honestly, um, you can't exaggerate the size of this guy, Eglon. Think of like Jabba the Hutt. And I'm serious. I'm like not exaggerating. History says that Eglon had a waist. I'm going to take a wild guess what his waist size was. 400. Now, I know that sounds like a gross exaggeration. But if you if you look today, if you could Google today and you go up, you'll find that there are people alive today that would meet those requirements or those specs. I mean, this was a Jabba the Hutt type dude. I mean, he was absolutely a very fat man. And so this fat Jabba the Hutt slob dude was ruling Israel. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I could do Jabba the Hutt's voice from Star Wars. You know, we'd make this story a little better here, but. And it says in verse 18, when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away um, the people who had carried the tribute. So the, the, the next judge that God raised up, he, he comes and Ehud um, and all the people and they bring a tribute to Eglon. What do you think they brought him? Without a doubt, right? Krispy Kreme donuts. 
by the by the truckload. And um, so so what Ehud did was he had the the people that came and offered the the tribute to to Jabba the Hut. They all left. And then he stopped and turned around and cut back about halfway and went back by himself to save them um, to Ehud. And it says in verse 19, but he himself turned back from the from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. All who attended him went out from him. And so the king was like, keep silent, then you will. <laughs> I don't know. That's not that's not job of the head on. That was Yoda. All right, I shouldn't have tried that. But he said, um, he, he said, okay, you know, because it was actually desired of, of it's probably to this day, um, of the kings, of the rulers, that if you had a divine word from God for you, and, and it would not have been uncommon, actually, that the word of the Lord or that God or even a diviner would come. And so he would have been excited, like, you know, and he would have been ready to hear and listen what the word of the Lord said. And obviously they would have known that Israel had a God named Yahweh who was a powerful God. And they would have respected whether they believed in him or not. They, without a doubt, would have respected and heard the stories of the God of the Israelites. And so when Ehud said, I have a word from the Lord for you. Um, Jabba the Hutt said, oh, you do? Okay, well, don't say it in front of all these people because it's just for me. And, you know, I don't want anybody to know. And so he made all the all his attendees and all his servants go out and, and so that he could hear the word by himself. And Ehud knew this would happen. And then it says in verse 20, so Ehud came to him and now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. You're going to like this message, fat man. And he arose from his seat, or you're not going to like it. And then he who reached with his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, and he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. So get a visual of that. So a dagger, it, it's, it's, it's described as a dagger and a sword, but... Um, I don't know. I'm not a dagger maker and I don't know what take a two edged sword, but the hilt, the handle. And even if it was a humble dagger, if it was this long and it went into his belly and the fat closed around it and it didn't even come out and his entrails came out. And so, um, in verse 23, it says, Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, oh, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. You know what that means, right? He was going to the bathroom. And if that dude was going to the bathroom, you probably wouldn't want to be anywhere near there. And so they're like, hey, dude, just he's going to the bathroom. Let's let's leave him alone. It's going to be a while, you know. So they steered clear. And it says, um, so they waited in verse 25 till they were embarrassed. I like that. It says they, you know, like they waited a long time to the point like they're like, oh, this is embarrassing now. Like this dude's been in there for a long time. You know, it's probably cleared up by now. We could probably go check on him. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and they opened him. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But he who had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarai. 
And now it happened when, the, when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. And he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, hopefully the Chevys too, <laughs> leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. They probably seized the fords because they were so terrible and they had to get rid of them. So, and the... And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the hand and the land had rest for 80 years. So this was a good one. This is the longest period of rest um, before they they fell again into the um, idol worship of the Canaanites and came under the rule of the Canaanites. And so... um, 80 years was a long stint under um, Ehud's deliverance. And then again, you know, nothing really changed um, when Ehud killed um, Jabba the Hutt other than maybe the morale and the, you know, maybe they were a little, you know, but still they had to go out. And and how many men did it say they killed? I forgot, but it was a bunch, right? 10,000. So they killed 10,000. But again, they still had to go out and fight. They still had to go out and do battle. They still had to go out and, um, you know, conquer what God had conquered. But it was enough that when God raised up a leader and a judge, then he went in and he had victory that the nation went up. And then verse 31, it says, And after him was Shagmar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. So um, this is a, a, a one-verse story right here at the end of chapter four. This is another judge that God raised up and with the goad, he killed 600 of the Philistines. So what was a goad? A goad. Do you remember when um, uh, the Lord Jesus spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus? And he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It isn't hard for you to kick against the goads. And obviously um, the Lord had been um, witnessing and Saul had realized that there was some truth to what the Christians were saying and what the early church and what the folks were doing before he became a Christian, because Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Like you, you, you're out persecuting Christians, but you know, you're battling the truth and you have, you know, he already knew God had already, and the Holy Spirit had already been calling Saul before the road to Damascus. That wasn't their first um, encounter. But Saul continued to kick against the goads. So basically the goad was a, was a you know, a round cone-shaped in, uh, spike that they would put on the back of the, the ox's plow. And so the part of the plow that went into the ground and then it would be strapped to the ox. Well, the ox would, would reach back and they would bust the plow and kick the plow and... And they wouldn't, you know, and so they would put goads, they would fasten goads to that part. And when the ox would kick backwards, he would kick into those sharp instruments. And he only had to do that a couple of times before he would stop kicking against the goads. And so, you know, Israel didn't have, and it's a little bit of a science to follow it, but um, Israel didn't fashion um, weapons of steel until later in their history. When King David was king, he, um, they, would, they would go into Philistine country to have their metal instruments sharpened and fashioned, and they didn't develop the technology till later. What, what's kind of hard to follow is if you go back in Israel's history, you'll see points where, you know, they mention swords. Ehud, in the last chapter, he had a sword that he fashioned, and he um, made it a double-edged sword. But Israel didn't possess the technology to do that stuff. In- 
So any of those things that they had, they, they gathered from the pagan nations. And it wasn't until later in their history they discovered that. So the goad, he killed 600 people with a goad. That was probably interesting. Huh? That was probably fun. I don't know why, but I always think in these, you know, in these stories that this is, this is a real event. Like real life. Hard to believe. Hard to, hard to kind of grasp, but without a doubt, a true story. You know, I think if I had to shoot 600 people with a 9 millimeter or with a, you know, it, it, how long would it take? And the effort and, I mean, with a goad, with a sharp instrument, the, the, the literal battle of fighting and killing 600 people would have taken, feels like days. You know, even if you killed what, I don't know, a couple an hour, three, four an hour, five an hour, six an hour. Could you get one every 10 minutes? I have to hit him a couple times with it before. All right, all right, sorry. But it's still, I mean, it's quite the task when you flesh it out, what this, you know, these guys did. And it says, um, chapter four, we got some time. Let's, let's, I was hoping to get through five tonight, and we might, five's a song, but it's got some good stuff. So it says, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So again, we're back to the same right circle, the same um, progression of going around the same mountain. And that's, again, what the book of Judges records for us is Israel's torrid, sordid tale of going around and around the same mountain. So the Lord sold them into the hand, we read that already, of this time a different king, of Jabin, king of Canaan, who who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army, was Sisera, who dwelt in Heroseth Hajoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron and four chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So for 20 years, he was oppressing. He was pretty powerful. He had these 900 chariots um, of iron. And so, again, we talked about it last week. But you remember that Israel hamstrung those horses and, and Joshua had a battle when the other guys had chariots. And the Lord told him to burn the chariots. And you come, you run into stories like this when they're facing other armies with chariots. And you think, why would the Lord have them burned those chariots in that, in that not that long ago? They would have come in real handy right now had Israel kept those chariots. But again, the, the, the lesson and the reason is because God wants us to be in a place in our lives where we trust in him. And, he, and, and so in your life and your finances and in those kind of things, when those things happen, you can be encouraged that you're right where you're supposed to be. Because God wants you to have to trust him for your next meal. God wants you to be in a place and we're in a better place when we have to live our lives in order to trust him. And so God purposely had Joshua destroy the chariots, hamstring the horses so that when they came into battle, they couldn't say, oh, let's go attack these guys. Let's fight them. We got we can, you know, bring our chariots out and fight them fire with fire. Instead, now they're in a bad way. And the only way they're going to go into this battle is if they get on their face and they seek Lord and the Lord goes before them. And so in your life, having, you know, set yourself up so that God has to show up in order for things to happen. That's the same way tithing works and the same way giving works, the same way trusting the Lord. You, you, you do it in a way that God has to show up. And it says, um, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord for Jabin, had 900 chariots of iron. And for, blah, 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 I read it, verse 4. And now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel at the time. And so Deborah, both a judge and a prophetess, um, God raises up this woman, 
judge, Deborah. Now, I've, I've heard um, several things here about Deborah, but to be honest, I, I don't know, I, I can't really find him. You know, a thing that kind of stuck with me for so long as a Christian, because I just heard a pastor teach it, and it was always what I just had in my head, but he said that, that God wanted to use a man, but there wasn't a man willing, and so God used a woman, and God raised up a woman. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know. But, but actually, I don't find that anywhere. I, I don't see where God wanted to use a man and there wasn't a man ready. And so, you know, because it almost makes the story of God using a woman, that the woman was inferior and that, you know, God, God really wanted to use a man, but he couldn't find one, so he had to settle for a woman. But that's not really what happens here. God didn't, nowhere does it say that. It says God chose Deborah. She was probably somebody who's just right on and loved God. And, and he was the one that she chose above all the men. And, and, and so, you know, again, as we move forward, there are no restrictions for women in ministry that we can find biblically, except for that it's not biblical for a man to, to be a senior pastor and to teach the Bible to men. And, and that's really the only restriction. Paul gives us that restriction in the New Testament. It's part of our Calvary distinctive. We can have, um, you know, no restrictions for women in ministry other than a woman cannot be a senior pastor. And so, you know, and that's, that's the best that, that, that we understand it from the scriptures. But God here uses this woman, um, Deborah, and she's one of the most famous, you know, judges that God raises up. And the fact that she was a woman makes her more um, notable and an interesting story because she runs into a guy in this chapter named Barry. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramoth and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came to her for judgment. And she sat and called for Barak or, or Barry, Barak, the son of Abinoam. You guys didn't know that Barry was in the Bible, did you? And then Barry, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord of God of Israel commanded go and deploy troops to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men, the sons of Nephi and the sons of, of Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude of the, of the river Kishon. And I will deliver them into your hand. And Barak said to her, I don't know if that's Obama or if that's, but Barak said to her, blah, blah, blah. So Deborah goes to Barry and she says to him, Mr. President, did God not tell you to go and fight these people? And so it doesn't tell us how God told him. Deborah was a prophetess, whether, whether um, God gave Deborah the prophecy and she came to this leader, um, Barak, here and recorded in the Bible and, and said, you know, God says to go and fight these 900 chariots in Sisera. And then she, gets, she delivers the prophecy and she leaves. And in good old Barry fashion, he cowers and does nothing. And she comes back to him and she says, what are you doing? Didn't, didn't the Lord speak to you about not signing this deal with Iran? <laughs> about actually doing something, um, you know, about not depleting our military to go up and fight these, these, these guys? Well, she came and she says, didn't God tell you? And he did. And God already spoke, but he, he didn't go up. Barak didn't go up in this story. Why? Why do you think? And it doesn't really tell us. But what, what is common in the Bible that we find? It's fear. Lack of faith. Same thing as fear, right? And obviously, 
you know, and again, this is something we shared on Sunday, but it is important. And I'm almost out of time, guys, but I'm going to finish this, and we'll we'll wrap up. We may not finish all of twenty, uh, all of four, but we'll, we're going to wrap up here in a minute. But um, if we look at life through through circumstance, it's scary. The guy had 900 chariots. He had an army. It was serious. But it, but if you if we if we back up and we look at life through God's lenses, that's why Joshua and Caleb came back, and they didn't see the giant. They saw their God. And in comparison to the giants, their God was huge. And so we don't, we don't look at, at, at life through the lens of the, the circumstance. We look at life through the lens of faith, through the, life, the lens of what is God's will. And if God, God already told this guy to go up, he was going to give him victory. But instead of taking it on faith and believing that God would have to show up and do something miraculous, because God would have in order for them to be, they didn't even have shields and weapons and swords. You know, they didn't have armies that were, you know, ready for battle with, with those kinds of weapons. And they're having to go up basically on faith. But again, that's where God wants us. And that's what God's call was. And then look what uh, old Barry says in verse number eight. He says, and, and Barry said to her, if you go with me, then I'll go. Then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I'm not going. If Deborah, the woman, will go with him, he'll go. What a, what a wimp. What, what a little turd here, right? Like, how, how would you think that would go off in Israel in any, in any army? This guy's a general. And he says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me, Deborah. So Deborah says, all right, you little turkey, let's go. So she said to him, verse number nine, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are, ta- you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And she kind of rubs it in. She pours a little salt on the wound. How's that going to make you feel? I'll go with you. But since you wouldn't step out in faith, you're not going to receive the glory. God's going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And interestingly enough, the woman won't necessarily be Deborah. God's going to use another woman in this story. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with them. So this guy had the ability to command 10,000 soldiers from these tribes. And they went to Heber. The Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and he separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanath, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and the people who were with him from Harosheth, Hagoim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, in other words, get up. For this, for this day is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and all the army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Where's the part about the storm? Did I miss it? No? Okay. Then verse 16, But Barak pursued the chariots of the army as far as Harshawith, Heguim, and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, now a man of left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my, my lord, and turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside, he went to the tent and she covered him with a blanket. And so basically what happened was God had raised up a storm 
And when these chariots came through this valley, what's the last thing you want to see when the, you know, you have 900 chariots of steel, of iron, led by horses. And basically what happened was God sent a huge thunderstorm. It flooded the plains. The chariots sunk down into the, into the, the, the mud. And so the chariots then were rendered, you know, useless. And the, and the Israelites came in and were slaughtered. And the king got away and he ran to this woman's house and he comes to her house and he says, you know, give me some, some milk and some bread. And she says, Oh, come on in, sweetie. Let me take care of you. And she, she covers him up with a blanket after she gives him some milk. And, and she realizes that if he's there running by himself, that the nation of Israel has prevailed. And at this point, it's like, choose the correct side or, or you know, you, you end up on the wrong side. You're going to be in trouble. And she realizes now that, that she doesn't want to be on this guy's side because if he's fleeing, that means they've left. And so um, he said to her in verse 19, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. And she opened a jug of milk and gave him drink and covered him. So not don't think of milk like what we drink today. They didn't have refrigeration. And so it would have been like curled cheese or something. And, and I guess he chewed it and he covered him. And, and he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And he's bossing her around. And if any man comes and inquires, you say, is there, a, is there any man here? You say, no. And don't tell him I'm here. And then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him. And drove the tent peg into his temple. TMI, right? And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. Um, so she she was definitely a woman who had driven a couple tent stakes in her day. And, um, you know, she, no kidding. She was, you know, really like worked on, worked with her hands and knew how to use a hammer and would have would have lived in tents and moved tents and no doubt knew how to drive tent stakes and he was sleeping and she came and she set the edge on his temple and she hit that thing so hard that it says that it went through into the dirt on the other side so i don't think you'd mess with that woman yeah i think you'd say yes dear <laughs> take out the trash right away my dear dishes would be done <laughs> you wouldn't be messing around with this girl and then in verse 22, it says, And then Barak pursued Sisera. Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew strong, stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Amen. All right, let's stand. I'm sorry, you guys. It's 837. That's super late on a Wednesday night. So, Rob, I guess we won't do a closing song because I went way over. Um, let's stand. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And, Lord, we, um, again, Lord, we take these, these stories and, and there's lessons that are for our lives. Lord, so many lessons of faith. And God, help us, Lord, to learn from these and help us to... Uh, face 900 chariots in our lives and, and go out in faith, God. Prepare an army and do diligence, but step out in faith when you call us. And Lord, for Barak, he, he was told, he was called, he was given a prophecy that he was supposed to go to this battle and he was afraid and he didn't go. And then, and then God, you raised up a woman named Deborah and um, he, he finally did reluctantly go, but he missed the, the glory, Lord. He missed um, the opportunity that you, you had. And Lord, in our lives, so many times we miss those opportunities. 
And so, God, help us to present, as you present, areas of faith that we would step out and we would be excited to step out knowing that we've put ourselves in a place where the only way this is going to work is if God shows up and does miracles. And our church is in that place right now, Father. Our church is in a place where, um, Lord, the only way it's going to work is if you show up and do miracles. And we're, we're excited to be right there, Lord. And so, Father, as we seek your face for miracles and, Lord, just for direction. And if, and if you come and you give us a word that we're, we're supposed to go up against uh, 900 chariots, then, Lord, we're going to be excited to step out in your name. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.